0: Coming up. I mean, this woman is haunted, haunted by this crime. I mean, she will, she still tells me she walks the floors at night and just thinks about her baby brother. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.
1: You're listening to The Daily Crime. Early in the morning hours of May 10th, 1980, over four decades ago, a 15 year old boy was shot and killed in Ohio. Recently, Brian Duggar, lead investigator for WTOL Channel 11 in Toledo, started looking into the case, and I'm joined by Brian on today's show. So, Brian, tell me about this young man, what we know about him and his last night alive.
0: Yeah, Mark DiStefano, uh, he was a 15-year-old kid. He had gotten in trouble um, a couple days before for smoking in the boys' room at, the, uh, at his school. And there was a dance on the night of May 10th, and I guess it would have been May 9th because he actually ended up being killed on May 10th. But uh, So he was not allowed to go to the dance, but he was allowed to go to the after party. So I think what everybody said about Mark is that he was uh, just really a fun-loving guy who always had this big smile. He was the uh, jokester in the family. Um He was a good-looking kid. He was 15 years old. He had long, curly hair, slight build, but apparently he had many older girls who really uh, took a liking to him.
1: And just to get a sense of where this is taking place, uh, describe sort of his hometown and and where, you know, is this a real rural location or what's it like then and now?
0: Yeah, it's actually Jerusalem Township. It's a little east of technically a Toledo suburb. And it is very rural. I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, cornfields out there. There's now a uh, a metro park that is out there. And it looks a lot today like it did back then, just not real developed. So this
1: last night back in 1980 that Mark was seen alive, what what happens later that evening? Uh, At first, he's not able to go to the dance, but then he is out with friends later on.
0: Right. They had kind of gone to a restaurant. They kind of met up with some friends, a couple girls, and uh, I believe it was two other girls and um, one of his friends. And they went to a restaurant, and then they ended up going back to this friend's house. And this, this friend lives about a mile and a half from Mark's house, and they went back to his house. The girls eventually left. And then there ended up being three guys at the house at that point, and they were just hanging out. The parents the parents were gone, and they were just hanging out around the kitchen table. Um, they got into the liquor cabinet, had a little vodka, and uh, were just kind of telling stories. The one guy said that he was going to stay there. Mark said that he wanted to walk home. Uh, the family had just gotten a german shepherd it was it was a puppy and he said he wanted to go home to sleep with you know the puppy and it was four thirty in the morning and his friend larry is just like mark you know stay it's really late you know there's other guys sticking around i mean just sleep for a couple hours and then you can go home then and he's like i mean he may have uh like I said, they're drinking vodka. So maybe he was a little tipsy and he just kind of uh went out the front door and was like, nope, I wanna I wanna go home. It's a short walk. And in that area of town it was no big deal for these guys, particularly back in 1980, to, you know, be walking one mile, two miles, three miles just to get between friends' houses. So uh um he just walked out the front door and he had to turn right on State Route two walk for about a mile and a half on that road, and his house was then about another quarter mile away. So it was about two miles altogether. What
1: happens next, or what do we know about what happens to Mark?
0: Well, at about 6 a.m., there was a uh, a uh, guy leaving his house on Brown Road, which is about a half mile past Mark's house, and he had told me that he was, he was used to that time of day to kind of keeping his eyes really peeled because sometimes a deer would run across the the road in front of him and so he was kind of looking out for that but he saw something on the side of the road and it looked like somebody he could, he could tell that it was a body of some type but he didn't know whether they're injured whether they're laying there so he kind of rolled down his window and he said hey hey buddy you okay and he could tell that the back of the head um, this person he could tell that this person had a significant injury to the back of his head and he did not respond so at that point, he kind of got out, looked at the body, and saw that the person was dead. He uh, went back home about a half mile away and, and called the sheriff's department, and they came out. And uh, that body, unfortunately, was Mark DeSefano.
1: And what could they tell, if anything, or was there any evidence that they found and what were the nature of his injuries.
0: Mark's pockets were turned out, so it, it looked like it was some sort of robbery. And on one side of the road there were two shells. It looked like from a a 22 or a small caliber rifle. Um and on the other side of the road there were three more shells. So Mark was shot twice in the back and three times in the head. So it's certainly easy to speculate and I believe Detectives believe that he may have gotten out of a car or something like that and and started running. And he was shot twice in the back, um, staggered across the road. And then whoever shot him came over at that point and then shot him execution style three times in the head.
1: Over the next months, years, uh, and and stop me if I'm jumping ahead too quickly here, but... There weren't any uh, suspects identified. There are some rather strange stories, one involving uh, a family member of Mark overhearing something at a party, and then a killing spree uh, in the area that takes us down another path. Can we talk about both of those?
0: Sure. Shortly after the killing, uh, Mark's uh, family name was Halka, uh, H-A-L-K-A, but his last name was actually Mark DiStefano, but his dad's name was Halka. So his uncle was at a party shortly after this. And for whatever reason, um, him and his wife were drinking tequila with another couple. He didn't necessarily know them very well. And the other, you know, husband and that other couple, all of a sudden he started talking about how he had been out of the pier one night and got in this big fight with the Halka kid. And boom, boom, no more halka. And he did not know that this was Mark's uncle. And the uncle, to this day, is still convinced that this man was telling the truth and that Mark had been killed out of the pier, which was, you know, a half mile, mile away, right on the right on Lake Erie there. And that person that said he had done this died back in 2018, I believe. Um, So I do know that detectives actually went out and they did interview him, and they just don't believe that that was the person. You know, during my investigation, it didn't make a lot of sense because Mark left the house at 430. He would have absolutely no reason to go out to the pier, and he never went out to that area. And the coroner put the time of death as 4:30, so it certainly wouldn't fit the timeline. I mean, this is a kid that left the house because he wanted to go home to see his dog, and and he, it it made no sense to go out to the pier and get in a fight with some older guy. Um, so that didn't just make sense. That just didn't make sense, and it didn't make sense to the detectives either. But Mark was killed on May 10th, 1980, and on May 14th, 1980, probably the most notorious serial killing spree in the Toledo area actually started. The Cook brothers, Anthony Cook and Nathaniel Cook, uh, they kidnapped a Toledo couple. They took them out to a farm field. They, they raped her and the boyfriend got away and he started running across this field and Nathaniel Cook had a twenty-two rifle, and he shot the guy three times in the back. And then he he went up to him and shot him once in the head.
1: So, again, this is a an unrelated case as far as we know. But go ahead. There there were those who questioned that, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, this was Anthony and Anthony Nathaniel Cook. And Anthony Cook eventually was blamed for 11 killings. And Nathaniel Cook participated in at least four of them that we know of. And the sister of Mark had reached out to me afterwards, after I, because back in February, I ran a story on the, the Cook brothers' killing spree. And the sister reached out to me and she said, I always wondered if they could have somehow been related to Mark's killing. And I didn't really think much of it at first. I mean, it was interesting because it was four days before the Cook brothers started their killing spree. But the more I looked into it, it, there really were a lot of similarities that kind of raised uh, red flags. I mean, the 22 caliber rifle uh, was used in both killings. Um, The person was shot multiple times in the back and then in the head. And then I really looked into it, and I'm like, well, that doesn't even make sense because they really weren't operating in that part of Lucas County, which is the eastern part of Lucas County. But when I looked into it deeper, they did. In March of 1981, they abducted a couple in the same area of town, Oregon, um, a nearby town. And what I found out is that they abducted a couple from an apartment complex where the Cook brothers' sisters actually lived. And the Cook brothers would often hang out in that area. And this apartment was a direct shot from where Mark would have been abducted if somebody picked him up on State Route 2. It was a direct shot straight down the road. So it really started to make sense at that point because these guys would just kind of, uh, you know, go up and down roads looking for people. And the the thing was that they would, you know, they would kidnap couples. But Anthony had also, uh, before they really started their killing spree, he had also abducted several girls. And rape them. And the thing about Mark, if you're driving up behind him, he was a fifteen year old kid with long brown, curly hair. He's a really slight guy. But if you're driving up behind him, he probably looked like a girl walking down the street in the early morning hours. So just the the same caliber of weapon, the same location that these guys would often patrol. And the viciousness, because this, again, like we mentioned earlier, this is a small town where this just didn't happen. I mean, Mark didn't have any money on him. They said, if anything, he maybe had maybe two, three, maybe five dollars in his pocket. He certainly isn't a likely uh, robbery target. So the viciousness of it and the location just really raised red flags. So where is that
1: all gone? Is that still a possibility in your mind? Or for investigators?
0: Yeah. So when I looked into this case, you know, I interviewed the the lead detective, and at that point, he showed me a report that you know Frank Siles had actually because he really did believe that the Cook brothers were likely behind Mark's killing, and he sent them a pretty a really detailed report saying this is what you need to test, and you. I know that we have a really good bullet from the May 14th killing, uh, the person killed in that case was Tommy Gordon. And they they got a really good bullet from that scene. And Frank's like, you need to test that bullet to the bullets pulled from Mark. And because of our investigation, they did. I mean, they compared um, at least the casings from Mark's killing and the casings found at the other murder scene. And unfortunately, they've, they've told us that those casings did not match. Um, We have asked for that report uh, more indicate, more, basically, I mean, the sister more than anybody really wants that report. And so they haven't really been forthcoming in providing that. Um, So they said that they tested it and it wasn't a match, but I do not have 100% certainty that that is completely
1: accurate. Yeah, it sounds to me like at least in your mind, you haven't closed the door on that on that connection.
0: No, and because this was forty years ago. I mean, look, it it's it's hard to keep evidence over that period of time. So is it possible that this really good bullet they had from the Tommy Gordon case has been lost over time? Certainly. And I don't even think you could really blame police for that because I mean the evidence room in in Toledo at multiple points they had, they had different flooding. Um, so I don't know what happened. And I'm just not real convinced at this point that everything has been tested that needs to be tested. In the
1: meantime, uh, family members of Mark DiStefano have passed away. And, and his sister, I believe, is one person you've kept in touch with. Tell me about what's going on today with family members who were, who still remain.
0: Well, that's the interesting thing. There's basically one family member who remains, and that is Angela, who brought this case to me. And the whole family, in general, it's just it's just tragic. I mean, one tragedy after another in this family. You know, Mark was killed back in 1980. A sister died of cancer. Um, the father died. Uh, the... The brother died of a massive heart attack. Um, Grandchildren have died. The mother recently died. And the only thing the mother ever wanted was answers in Mark's case. So at this point, that's kind of Angela's, I mean, it's her sole goal in life, really, at this point. And, I mean, this woman is haunted, haunted by this crime. I mean, she will she still tells me she walks the floors at night and just thinks about her baby brother and just wants answers. And she's just completely consumed by this because this is all she really has left at this point in her life. I mean, all of her family is gone and she just wants answers in this case. Such a a
1: sad story. Uh, And Brian, such a a really amazing investigation you've done. And our listeners can read more about this case and your investigation at wtol.com they can search for 11 investigates the murder on brown road
0: right absolutely again this was just kind of an offspring of the uh, the cook brothers story slash investigation i had done and and the cook brothers themselves is just a really fascinating case because they killed up to 11 people and the prosecutor actually had to cut a plea deal with them so that they would confess to all their killings. And the result of that plea deal is that Nathaniel Cook, after 20 years in prison, he is now walking the streets of Toledo as a free man.
1: One of two brothers who admitted to stalking, raping, and killing young women in the 80s is a free man tonight. Nathaniel Cook was released today after an emotional court hearing.
0: Well, Cook will now go into a work release program. We're told that he's already interviewed for a job at Goodwill Industries, and Cook plans to live with his sister as well as get a driver's license. We reaction to all this from Sandra Rawlings, a survivor of one of Cook's attacks? Uh, I'm disappointed. He needs to be in needs to be in prison for the rest of his life. And in court today, Judge Jennings said that uh, she tried to find a legal basis to prevent Cook's release. She couldn't find one.
1: All right, Brian Duggar, thank you so much for talking to us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday, Monday through Friday. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a great review if you like what you hear. And if you'd like to learn more about the show and Vault Studios, check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault.